Well, I feel like just closing in prayer and thanking the Lord for such a good, clear message. And it's nice, you think, just one year old in the Lord, and the Lord's given him not only the clarity of the message, but the good gift and ability to give out the message and to share it with others. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And as you find your place there, I'm going to take just a statement that Justin made and make a connection for our message tonight. And I don't know if he had the same question that was asked me, but it sounds very similar. And the question was given to me, and I pass it on to you as an introductory statement or question. If you stood at heaven's gate tonight and God asked you, why should I let you in, what would you say? Now, that may be a very familiar question to many, but it might be the first time you've ever considered it. What would your answer be? And we read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, all about another gate. We've been studying the gates, the sheep gate and the fish gate and the old gate this morning. We're going to go to a New Testament gate, and it's a gate of a city. But I believe it represents the gate of life and death. Follow through as I read with me in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, where it says, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto you, Arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented or gave him to his mother. Verse 16 says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And here at Yosemite, we've heard the same story. Shall we ask the Lord to help us understand what took place on that day at that gate, a gate that stands before you and me tonight? Shall we pray? Oh, our blessed Father, once again we come to another gate, a different gate altogether, but a gate that represents to us the most important decision that we could ever make, a decision between life and death. Lord, there are reasonings and stirrings of heart that take place at gates through your word. We pray that tonight, as the gospel message goes forth one more time, that we claim the promise that the Lord Jesus gave. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we pray, Father, that no force will be able to prevent any soul from coming to Christ tonight but that your spirit would convict of sin, of righteousness, 
and of judgment, and would point men and women, boys and girls, to the only one in all the universe who can save and proved it by His death, burial, and by His resurrection, that those who put their trust in Him will have guaranteed eternal life and the joy of their sins forgiven this very night. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this story is very familiar to us. It's a real story that really happened, and it's one of the few times where you see the Lord Jesus actually reach out and touch someone, and I'm praying that your heart might be touched tonight as well. In this situation, we see a few different things taking place. First of all, the circumstances surrounding it that are very familiar to each one of us, not historically speaking, but present day for you and for me. Notice the circumstances as they're given to us in verses 11 and 12. Now it happened. Well, that's an easy phrase, isn't it? Because there's always something happening. What's happening in your life? What's happening in my life? There's something going on here. And that's the circumstance that opens up this story. And it takes us really to the precedings that came about leading up to this very day, as it says, now it happened the day after. Well, what happened the day before? The Lord Jesus in His ministry generally speaking, in the upper region of Israel, in the Galilee, had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And there in Capernaum, in a Jewish area, he was asked by the Jews to work a miracle on behalf of a man who was a Roman centurion to heal his servant who was sick, nigh unto death. Well, the Lord Jesus He responded in His grace, as He always does. In fact, they came and begged on behalf of this Roman centurion, saying, This man is worthy that you do this miracle for him. But when the Lord Jesus spoke with the centurion, or at least the messengers that came from the centurion, the centurion had a different message altogether. He said, I am not worthy that you would even come under the shadow of my roof. I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. And so he sent his servants asking, Please heal my servant who is nigh unto death. The Lord Jesus, hearing a man, just as our brother Justin mentioned, you know, pride can keep you from Christ. Pride is the first sin and it's the worst sin. It's the sin we hardly ever talk about, but it'll keep you from Calvary and keep you from eternal life. This man He had already overcome that obstacle. He said, I'm not worthy. The Lord Jesus, seeing a man who recognized and acknowledged his unworthiness to come to Christ, responded in this way. The Lord Jesus said, I say unto you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So now you have the unworthiness of man. And you have faith in God. These are important elements, as you know. If we think we can earn eternal life, we can never be saved. But if we think we can make it by any way of our works or our efforts or performance, we can never be saved. It requires an acknowledgement of our sin and sinfulness. 
not worthy, and requires faith. For without faith it is impossible to please God. For him that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is essential. So that was the preceding. All the way from Capernaum, it was a day's journey all the way to a little city or town called Nain. And that's the circumstances around the journey. But look at something else. It says in verse 11, Now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain. Look down in verse 12. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. That's another part of the circumstance. Death. Death. It's a circumstance that every one of us have following us like a shadow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's like a shadow that's always with us. Why is that? Well, it's because, as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed unto all men, and that includes women, every single human being in the world, it's appointed unto every one of us to die, and after death, judgment. I have a friend who just changed his career not long ago and went into the funeral home business. And he gave me his business card. Now, on the back of his business card, it has appointment and a blank line. He said, fill it in and let me know. <laughs> I said, that's one appointment I'm not going to make. It's already been made for me, and yours has been made for you. You know, I marvel that people tell me I don't go to funerals. I don't like to go to funerals. I said, there's one you're not going to miss. It's true, isn't it? We may not like it. And who does? Now, we're not afraid to die, but the process of it scares us pretty bad. Like one brother said, he said, I'm not afraid to die. In fact, it was Dr. David Gooding. He said, I'm not afraid to die. He said, but if you put me in a, in a pen with a bull and put a red shirt on me, I'm going to run for my life. It's true, isn't it? The circumstances of death, they're ever with us. We're driving down the interstate. Someone makes a wrong move. Cars come together and we see people die before our eyes. Why do you think everything stops just to look on? I mean, the radio announcer just says we've got onlooker delays, rubberneckers coming down the road, watching people die. Why do we stop just to see people die? It's because we have this constant reminder that one day it's going to be you and it's going to be me. I don't know when. I'm so glad I don't. I don't know how. I don't want to know that either. As any believer in this particular day in which we live, we're looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. It always scares me a little bit when people say, Lord, undertake for him. I said, let's choose different words, please. Huh? But we're looking for the Lord to come. But if he doesn't come, one day it's going to be me. And one day it's going to be you. That's the circumstances. It's not really so far away, is it? It's not really so long ago. It's right now. And it's for you and for me. And so death was part of the circumstance. Now, the death was the son of a widow. And we see some of the compassion that the Lord Jesus showed to this dear woman. A widow meaning that her husband had already died. 
and her son, her only son, had also just died. Who does she have left? Who can she turn to now? Maybe extended family. I'm sure of it. Maybe close friends. But what could they do? Her only son, without a husband, now he's gone. And we read in verse 13 that the Lord saw her. Notice what it says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, aren't you glad to know that the Lord doesn't miss seeing us in our times of sadness and sorrow? He doesn't miss it when your heart is broken. He does care. Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. He does. And when he saw her, what a comfort that is. He had compassion on her, it tells us in verse 13, and what a consolation that is. But did you notice what he said in verse 13? Woman, do not weep. Now, if the fact that he saw her is a comfort and the fact that he had compassion is consolation, to say do not weep, what kind of statement is this? Of course, the Lord knows what he's going to do. You and I are told to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. But the Lord Jesus tells this woman whose heart is broken, do not weep. And when he made that statement, I'm sure it was because he knew exactly what he was going to do. I have no doubt that the Lord Jesus, knowing the appointments of every one of us, made that trip from Capernaum to Nain, a whole day's journey, just to be there at just that time, at just that place, at the gate at the city of Nain. And there he was, and he told this woman, do not weep. Now, I remember the first time I was asked to preach a funeral. And I thought, what do you say at a funeral? I had been to a few funerals, but I never really considered what do you do. So I thought, well, I'll look in my Bible and see what the Lord Jesus would do. Do you know he ruined every funeral that he attended? He can mess up a perfectly good funeral. And he did this one as well. And so he tells the weeping mother, do not weep. And then look what he does. You not only have the compassion of the Lord Jesus in verse 13, but in verse 14, we have his command. Now, he's the Lord of life. The prince of life. And in verse 14, notice step by step. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What a command. Just the fact that he would walk up and touch the open coffin. Based on the law, he would have been made unclean. He wasn't afraid to touch even the leper when he cleansed the leper. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And he said, I will. And he reached out and touched the leper. That would have made him unclean. It would have made him defiled. But death nor leprosy can make him defiled or make him unclean because he's the one who gives life for a look at the Savior. And so he reached out and touched the coffin and the men stood still. Now, I want us just to kind of go through some of the situation to build it so we can appreciate it. 
that the Lord might realize in the stillness of that moment what had taken place. Picture as if you will, you're there at that very moment and you watch the coffin, the funeral procession, standing still with just that touch that stopped everything. Can I say dead in its tracks? It stopped it just like that. And there were moments like that. And this is that kind of moment where you've just got to wait and hear the stillness. I've heard a number of speakers say, we're going to have two minutes of quiet time, of just silent prayer. And whenever they do that, I look at my watch. I have never found a teacher or preacher that gives it two full minutes of silence. It is deafening. (laughs) We can't take it. And usually within 45 to 50 seconds, everybody breaks down and somebody has to say something. Where a cough interrupts, where a bird all of a sudden comes into our hearing, where the sound of the wind is heard in the trees, that stillness of that very moment. I won't do it to you. I won't give you the stillness. I couldn't make it two minutes. Just a few seconds. Just listen for a moment. And those who carried the coffin stood still in their place. Now let's try to build this very carefully. Hold the conclusion for just a moment. There's some comparisons that we have to make. The first comparison is in verse 12. I want you to see something that will bring this home to just between you and the Savior. The first of a few comparisons has to do with the Lord and this young lad who had just died. Did you realize, as we read it, that both of them were only begotten sons? The Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. The only begotten of the Father. John says, we beheld Him full of grace and truth. The only one, the unique Son of God. There's none other like Him. The only begotten Son of the Father. The young lad who had died, he also is an only begotten Son. But he's the only begotten Son of his mother. And in great contrast, we see how God came and took on a body of human flesh as the only begotten Son of God. Why? So that He could come and touch the life of an only begotten Son. He's just looking for you, one of a kind. There's no one else like you. You're the only one. And He wants to make contact with your life tonight. You see, not only that comparison, but in verses 11 and also 12, you you see two great crowds of people. I asked the the shuttle driver, I said, as we were going back to the campground today, uh, she seemed like a jovial kind of lady. And while she was giving directions, looking in her mirror, she was telling people way back in the back to have a seat, to move back, to do this. And I said, well, you're like a mother who has eyes in the back of her head. (laughs) A little bit later, she heard somebody talking way back in the back, talking about what stopped to get off. And she came on the microphone and she said, you'll need to get off at stop number 17. She said, I got ears like a mother has too. (laughs) I said, I bet you got a mother's heart as well. She said, as a matter of fact, I do. I love all the children that come here to Yosemite. Isn't that nice? 
I mean, how do you get a shuttle driver like that? How much would you pay for that? It's a free service, you know. And I said, now, I was standing right there because it was crowded. I said, while I was white knuckling the bar, I said, I know you're not a tour director, but how many people come through Yosemite in the year? She said, oh, that's a good question. I said, I didn't know if you would know it or not. She approximates four million people come through Yosemite every year. That's a lot of people. I thought maybe four million right now. If you go stand in line for ice cream. I mean, really? That's a lot of people. Have you noticed how different everybody is? Hardly any of them are like me. Well, that's because God, while he works with the individual, the only begotten son of God, the only begotten son of his mother, he also works with the masses as well. With the multitudes that follow him. And there are two large crowds that day. Verse 11 tells us one large crowd was the Lord Jesus who came from Capernaum walking. And he had many disciples with him and a large crowd followed him. Now they were coming from Capernaum where the Lord had just worked a great miracle. Where a Roman centurion who built the Jews a synagogue had just gotten his request and his servant had been healed. Don't you know that large crowd was following the Lord all the way to see what he would do next? The other large crowd, verse 13 tells us, is the funeral procession of all the people that knew this lady, knew her family, knew the village, knew the young man who had died. And that large crowd was following. Two large crowds, but not too many people for the Lord to know. Let me tell you, If you feel like you're in a large crowd here, don't get lost in the shuffle. Don't be hiding in the crowd. God wants to do business with your heart tonight. You're only one person. There's none like you, no matter how many people you're with. Four million, he can spot you, and he knows even the very hairs of your head that are all numbered. And he knows you better than you know yourself. He even knows your heart better than you know it. And he says, it's desperately sick. It's incurable. Who can know the heart? God knows the heart. And he sees you in the crowd. So you have two crowds. One from Capernaum with the Lord. And one from the city of Nain going out. Look at the next. There, in that same verse, we have one crowd going into the city. The other crowd coming out of the city. And they're going to meet at one gate. There are two groups, two crowds in the universe. There are those who are dead and there are those who are alive. At that gate, one crowd was going in, the other crowd coming out. Those of you who are right here, right now, you're living. You have life and breath. We have all things. This message is for us. To the living, there are some who have already passed away. I, uh, <clears throat> I was amazed to see unique gospel outreach take place in our little assembly when we first started at our location. We'd gone door to door. Not many people come in response, maybe a couple. The gospel went out and God gives the increase and he honors his word. 
some of the ladies said, if you want to really reach people, you need to have a, a yard sale or an attic sale, a garage sale. I don't know what you call them here in California. <clears throat> but they said, we promise you, if you'll do this, you'll get a big crowd that'll listen to the gospel. I said, well, if we agree to this, you can't tell any other assemblies in the area. And we did it. You know, we had 250 people the first year we did it. We gave away a lot of free stuff, free coffee, free donuts, free gospel messages, gave away Bibles to each person. They were amazed. They came away with all this free stuff and got a good deal on all of our junk. We did it the next year. 300 people came. The next year, 350 people came. We added a barbecue and uh, we didn't. We thought, well, we'll give away the barbecue. And they said, no, they'll be afraid of that. So we put a low price on it and said, sit down and eat. We set up tents and set up chairs and we did all kinds of things. And we had a, a, a man and a woman come, just friends. And it was the only time we saw them. They listened to the gospel message and they were gone. Eight months later, a man pulled up in a beat up jalopy, him and his buddy. And I was in the parking lot at the chapel and he drove by and he said, uh, he said, Richard's been here before. And he died a few days ago. We're looking for somebody to do the funeral. I said, Richard, Richard. And they said, yeah, yeah. He came when you had some kind of thing up here at the church parking lot. And I, I said, well, I'd be glad to do it, but I got to tell you right up front what I'm going to say at the funeral. And I went through the gospel with him just in case I never saw him again. You know, you got to take the opportunities as they come. And so he asked me to, to meet him that night. And he said, we're just inviting the neighbors out to the backyard. We're going to have something to eat. Uh, he's already been buried. We just want to have a memorial service. We don't know what to do. And so I went. And I got there, and <clears throat> believe me, it was a different kind of gathering. There was drinking and smoking and eating, and they had some plastic chairs set up with some umbrellas all around. And at a certain point in our little visit, they said, all right, go ahead and talk to us. And I went through the gospel. I said, I only met Richard one time. I said, I remember he was a nice person, very kind, very open. He heard a message, the same message I want to give you tonight. Right in the middle of the gospel message, the lady friend who was there, she said, where is Richard right now? And I said, I can't tell you where he's at right now. I know he's either in heaven or in hell. I can't tell you. God knows the heart. But I will tell you this, no matter where he's at, he wants you right now, tonight, to hear the message while you're still living and breathing, while there's still hope. And it's true right now. You don't have a clue where you're going to be tomorrow. We might be the next to enter into that group going out through that gate into death. But right now, we're on the inside. Going in, others have already gone out. Don't put it off. This is the time. Look at the very next comparison. You not only have two only sons, the only son of God and the only son of his mother, who was a widow. You not only have two large crowds. You not only have two directions, but you got two experiences going on. What kind of experience do you think that the Lord Jesus had in his crowd? I bet there was joy. Maybe even a little shouting and dancing, knowing the Jewish people. Maybe clapping their hands as they walked along with the Lord Jesus, still going from the experience of joy that was full and overflowing. But then the other experience, sadness, mourning, 
wailing, sorrow, weeping. Now, you can't get a bigger contrast than that, can you? And those two experiences come blending together. Where? Right at that gate. How does it sound when joy and gladness meet with sorrow and sadness? Well, Ezra knew what it was like. And it was hard to distinguish. Moses and Aaron knew what it sounded like. It sounded like the sound of war in the camp. And I want to tell you, it's the war of the ages that take place right there. And in this great comparison of joy and gladness compared to the funeral procession with all of the sadness going on, the consideration we have tonight is that they all, both of them, all those people in both groups meet at that one gate. And my question when I read this is, which one will give way to the other? You're driving down the road in town. A funeral procession passes you by. What do you have to do? You have to stop and pull over and wait for them to pass by. There's not a law always in every town about that. But it is the right thing to do, isn't it? To show honor to those who have deceased. Which one will give way to which when you come to a gate? One with a crowd that's characterized by life and joy and peace and one that's death and sadness and sorrow. And as they converge on one another at that particular gate, which one's going to step aside and let the other one by? I found a verse for it. Death is swallowed up by life. We do it the other way around. Because we know that we're all frail human beings that one day will die. And we give way to those who have died. But not this situation. Death gives way to life. Victory is over the grave and over sin and over Satan and over death. Isn't it great to know that the Lord, who is the Lord of life, steps right into the situation. And with just a touch, he brings that man right back to life and life takes the upper road. Here's my real question. Which group are you in? Which characterizes your life? Let's look at the conclusion as we bring it all together. Here's the conclusion. The Lord Jesus in verse 15, if you'll notice that please, in Luke chapter 7, verse 15. Having said, young man, I say unto you, arise. And in the stillness of that moment, everybody watches. If he doesn't move, death has the victory and death wins the day. But if he responds, life has the victory and life wins the day. And the young man, notice how it says in verse 15, the young man or he who was dead, he sat up and began to speak. Don't you wonder what he said? I wish I knew. When I see him in glory, I'm going to say, what did you say? I wonder if he said, Mom, what am I doing here on this, on this 
in this open coffin, sitting right up in the coffin. Uh, this was not the light of the living dead, all right? Uh, this was the real thing, brought back to life. And he sat up and began to speak. I don't know what he said. But it does make me think about the other two that the Lord Jesus raised from the dead. Like Jairus' daughter, just a little girl, 12 years old. She was already dead when the Lord Jesus arrived. And all those who were mourning and weeping, he put them all out. And he went and he took that little girl by the hand and lifted her out of death right back into life. And you know what he told her? Her parents, give her something to eat. And then to Lazarus, his dear friend, whom he loved, him whom thou lovest is sick. And he waited four days. And when he got to the tomb of Lazarus, what did he say? Lazarus. Someone said, I'm glad he called his name. Everybody would have come from the dead then. (laughs) Lazarus, come forth. And he who had been dead came out wrapped in linen strips of cloth. Erwin Lutzer said he floated out of the tomb, wrapped up head to toe. And the Lord Jesus said, loose him and let him go. He began to walk. Do you know, these are characteristics that should be in the lives of those of us who are believers. If we can follow it carefully, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, just like that young man. We were like that only son of his mother, the widow. We had no hope, nothing left. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 tells us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace are you saved through faith. Isn't it good news? What do you do when you first come to Christ? You're made alive, and in the newness of life, You've got to get something to eat. You eat from the Word of God. <laughs> You've got to start to speak. You want to tell others, just like Justin told Doug about being saved and learned how endearing the term brother can be. And you've got to walk. Loose them and let them go. But I come right back to the question. What about for you? Which group are you in? If you stood... At the gate of heaven tonight. And the Lord said, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Ultimately, it comes right down to this. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral. You cannot be. One day your soul will be asking, what will he do with me? Because you stand at the gate of life and death tonight. And if you have not entered in to life through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we also heard from Romans 3.19, that you with all the world will become guilty before God and every mouth will be stopped. What will you say on that day? There's only one name and one word that will get you in. But you must make that plan before you leave earth, before you pass from a group and a crowd of life into the crowd of death You must know before you go. Now, salvation is based solely upon this. Just as the Roman centurion said, I'm not worthy, we're not worthy. 
Just as the Roman centurion had faith, you must have faith. It's impossible without it. And just as the Lord Jesus took this young man, and the Scripture says he presented him to his mother, literally, he gave him as a gift. The same word that in John 3.16 is given, for God so loved the world that he gave a gift, presented him, his only begotten son. And here's the invitation, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you stand at heaven's gate and God says, why should I let you in? The only person who will get you in is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Well, I hope you're in the gate. And I hope that there be no questions about how to enter in. But if you have any question, please don't just take it home and sleep on it. We don't have the guarantee of the next morning. But right now, the verse that the Lord used to save me, I give it to you. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And it's simply this. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And now is the accepted time. Don't put it off another moment. This is the day. Now is the time. A friend of mine traveled with an older brother every week to a prison to give a gospel message. He just went to help with the hymn books and everything. And Andy said, you know, I'm not, I'm not a preacher. I'll just go and help Mr. Johnson as long as I can. And Mr. Johnson suffered a heart attack on a Thursday. Monday was coming for the night with the prison. And Andy thought, well, I need to go tell the prisoners that Mr. Johnson won't be coming anymore. It's been nice getting to know them. And he thought, well, if I go, I should at least give a little devotion. And so he prepared a message. And Andy went. He told him, this will be my last night here. Mr. Johnson died Thursday. But I thought he'd give you a little message. And he gave a gospel message. And right in the middle of his gospel message, one of the prisoners stood up and said, Andy, do I have to wait till you finish to get saved? Andy had been going to that prison every week for the last 11 or 12 years. Hadn't missed another, another week. Let me just say, you don't have to wait till we close in prayer. Right where you sit, you can say, Lord, I know I don't have my sins forgiven. I know I don't have life. My life is so sorrowful and misery, filled with misery. I need life. I need my sins forgiven. I want to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that he's my Savior. And know that I have eternal life. You can do that right where you sit as I close in prayer. You don't even have to wait till I finish and close in prayer. But if you have questions. I'm not saying I've got all the answers. But I can show you in the Bible. All it takes in order to be saved. And I'm sure any of those in leadership here. Be glad to sit down right there with you. Don't stand in the back of the crowd and be shy. Listen. This is the night. This is why we're here. Don't leave. The same way you came, if you don't know the Savior, shall we pray. Our Father, how we thank you that the Lord Jesus is indeed the Lord of life. And at this very moment, he sees through this crowd that we have, the individuals, and he knows each heart and the ponderings of the heart of each person here tonight. 
O Lord, we pray that your Spirit might do indeed such a great work to stir and to move the heart of those who are nearest hell right here in our midst to see that this is the day and this is the moment when I can have my sins forgiven and have the guarantee of eternal life, a home in heaven, peace in my heart, on my way home to glory, and the joy of Christian fellowship that I've never experienced before. O Lord, we look to you to accomplish this, because with men it is impossible, but not with you, for with you all things are possible. Lord, meet them at the gate, the gate that leads to life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And may it be that we'll have great cause of rejoicing when we hear of souls coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his own matchless name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.